Well, there I was, sitting across from my girlfriend, Alex, who I was madly in love with, who I really wanted to marry, and who I was sure was about to break up with me. We had been dating long distance for almost a year, and after spending several months in Tanzania doing missions work together, I wanted to propose to her so badly, I wanted to make her my wife. But before I could propose, I had to invite her into something, my sexual brokenness. At the time, she was living in Fort Collins. I was here in Minnesota. And so I flew out, and I strategically positioned this conversation just a few hours before I had to hop on a flight so that when she broke up with me, there wouldn't be too long of an awkward time uh, of us being together. It was the day of my exposure. It was the worst day of my life. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we encounter a woman on the day of her exposure, the worst day of her life. Now, before we dig in, we need to address just a a tiny, technical, no big deal issue that is this passage might not be scripture. Kind of a big deal. If you have a a solid translation in your lap, there should be a bracket above chapter 8 that says something like, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. Does your Bible say that? Okay, good. Kind of a big deal, right? So uh, why are we studying this this morning? And better question, why do translations even keep this then in the Bible? A few reasons. While this passage doesn't occur in the earliest manuscripts, it is in the large majority of very early manuscripts. That means it probably wasn't written by John. Uh, It was written by someone, though, who the early church identified to be authoritative. A lot of people think either Peter or Jude, and quickly added. Regardless of the authorship, here's what we can know about this passage. One, this passage is consistent with the character of Jesus. When you read Apocrypha or obvious fakes, uh, they just read different. Um, Sometimes, if you haven't, maybe read like the Gospel of Peter. In the Gospel of Peter, uh, Jesus as a kid is trying to impress his buddies, and so he gets some clay and he molds a little bird out of it and breathes on it and it just flies away. Like, that's just different, right? That's different from the, the Jesus of the New Testament. It's cartoonish. The Jesus we meet here in John chapter 8 is consistent with the Jesus we meet in every page of the New Testament. Secondly, the theology of this passage is consistent with the theology of the New Testament. New Testament scholar Leon Morris notes that the theology we find here is the theology we find everywhere else. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you not be judged. Uh, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Lastly, we don't see any recorded disputes about the authenticity of this passage in the early church. Instead, there seems to have been an early and unanimous adoption of this passage. For this reason and others, D.A. Carson writes, quote, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described actually occurred. So I'm going to preach this passage today as an accurate account of a real historical event written by someone inspired by the Holy Spirit, not named John, all right? 
That's where we are. With that, let's lean in. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. If you're there, say there. All right, let's lean in. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, this is a great place for like a collective gasp, ready? Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. The language here is intentional. She wasn't caught leaving the guy's house. She was caught in the act. Perhaps it was just bad timing. Maybe it was a setup. Whatever the case, she made some bad decisions. And in the act, the door is kicked in. She's dragged out of bed, half naked or maybe fully naked, There's yelling, there's scoffing, there's shouting and pointing. Everything is so loud. Everything's happening so fast. Can you guys, can you imagine how embarrassed she must be? Can you imagine her face and neck just flushed with shame, just red hot with shame? Can you imagine how scared she would be as as she's hearing people say things like, hey, hey, go find so-and-so, tell him to meet us at the temple. We found one in the act. And we're going to bring her to the rabbi to see if he has the guts to do what he knows he needs to do. Certainly before they asked Jesus, she already knew their intent. Verse 5, they bring her to Jesus. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Can you just hear their despise of her? They don't even call her her. They're just such women. So what do you say? Remember from the resurrection, guys, the only question in life that matters is what does Jesus say? And here, we just have to admit, they weren't wrong. According to the law, adultery was punishable by stoning for the man and the woman. One thing, question asked with this text is, where's the guy? But... She was caught in the act. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, she's guilty. And now because these are scribes and Pharisees, they would have wanted to stone her uh, the way the Talmud describes. According to the Talmud, a a proper stoning should happen like this. Uh, a uh, A hole would be dug about 10 to 12 feet deep. They would fill the bottom of the hole with jagged rocks and then bind you by the hands. They'd lead you to the edge of the hole, and the first witness got the privilege of pushing you in. And can you imagine just falling 12 feet, hands behind your back, onto jagged rocks below? Some people didn't survive the fall. But if you survived it, if if you landed on your stomach, somebody would crawl in, roll you onto your back so you could face your accusers. And then the second witness would get the privilege of throwing the first rock. Um, And they would be aiming for your head or your chest. 
Then people would line up one by one according to those most affected by your sin. Maybe your father would throw the next stone, then your imam, then your brothers. And one by one, people would aim for your face or your chest until you died of blunt force trauma. According to the law, this woman does deserve to be stoned. And so do I. When I was seven or eight years old, a neighborhood boy about the same age wanted me to play doctor with him. And that turned into 20 to 30 secret sexual encounters with him. And I was the party being sinned against, but I became the party also in sin. For through it all, I began to actually look forward to these encounters. After those, I had one thing on my mind as a child all the way through adolescence, one thing and one thing only, sex. As I moved through middle school and high school, I became very sexually confused and severely addicted to masturbation, sometimes seven to eight times in a single day. While most kids couldn't wait to get home to play video games, I couldn't wait to get home to be alone with my sin. In high school, I became sexually active with girls. I remember one time at a party, a girl gave me her number. I went over, we did what we did, and we never exchanged a single word. I didn't even care to ask her what her name was. Like the woman in John 8, I deserve to be stoned. And you do too. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man with lustful intent has already committed adultery. How's that going? Anyone free and clear of that? Under the law, adultery was not the only sin that warranted being stoned. People were stoned for breaking the Sabbath, not taking one day off a week to rest in the goodness of the Lord. How's that going? People were stoned for blasphemy, taking God's name in vain. How's that going? People were stoned for idolatry, uh, treating anything or anyone as more important than Yahweh God. How is that going? People were stoned for disrespect. If you disrespected your father or your mother, stone them. How's that going? How many of us, real question, how many of us could say, man, if I was living in Old Testament times, I straight up would have been stoned. Yes. The point here, guys, is we all deserve to be stoned. All of us deserve the wrath of the infinitely holy and pure and righteous God because our sins are not just against people, our sins are against him. A lot of people say, well, I, I just don't believe anybody deserves to go to hell. Yeah, that's because you don't believe. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. You have no clue how holy he is. If you believed in the God of the book, you wouldn't say nobody deserves to go to hell. You would say nobody deserves to go to heaven. In light of God's infinite holiness and infinite justice, we all deserve to be stoned. 
But here's the crazy thing. Not only do we deserve to be stoned, point two, we all pick up stones. Guys, I wish I could read the story and only identify with the woman caught in adultery, but unfortunately, I also see myself in the religious people so eager to grab a stone and bash someone with it. It's like in the prodigal son. We see ourselves in the, the reckless son, and we see ourselves in the older religious son. Likewise, in John 8, we're supposed to see ourselves in the woman as people deserving to be stoned, and we're supposed to see ourselves in the religious leaders, those people who have a high view of self and a harsh view of others. I once heard a, a preacher identify these stones, and I've never for, forgotten them, um, probably because they all start with R's. But first, the first stone we throw is this, rocks of righteousness. The, these are formed when we fall into the trap of believing that while we are saved by grace, we are sanctified by self-determination. As you make progress in holiness, you don't gain a higher view of God and his grace, you gain a higher view of yourself and what you're doing with his grace. As we read more books and as we read more Bible and our knowledge of God grows bigger, so do the stones we throw. How could they do that? Did you hear about that? Have you read that? How, how, how could you think that? Uh, the reason you don't share my conviction on this thing is because I'm godly and, I mean, you're not. I'm the standard and you're falling short of the standard. My old pastor used to say, absolute truth in the hands of absolute sinners can be absolutely brutal. The second stone we throw are stones of rightness. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm right. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm right. I'm right. I'm sorry. I'm right. The incalculable damage done by uncorrectable Christians. I'm doing a lot of counseling nowadays, and the number of times I hear people say, my dad was awesome. He did so many good things. I never heard him say sorry once. My mom was amazing. She loved us so well. But come to think about it, I've never heard my mom admit that she was wrong. Yet a motto I'm trying to live my life by is, if you're wrong in the way you're right, you're wrong even though you're right. Isn't that what we see in the, in the Pharisees? They were right, but they were wrong in the way they were right, and so they were wrong even though they were right. Another type of stone we throw are rocks of resentment. This is, uh, you hurt me, either intentionally, probably unintentionally, and I'm not going to overlook it. I'm not going to let love cover it. I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to harbor this and secretly hold on to this until I hate you in my heart. If you hold on to resentment long enough, you will throw the next stone, the rock of revenge. You hurt me, and I'm going to make you pay. That might look like a confrontation, but in these parts of the country, it probably looks like a, a passive-aggressive comment. It's, uh, I'm not going to text her back. I'm not going to show up to his thing. I'm not going to like his post. That'll show him. And probably the worst 
stone we throw is the rock of retreat. This is, uh, this is we don't talk anymore. This is dad goes to the garage, mom goes to her room. This is why bother, why even bring it up? We've already talked about this. We've already gone around and around. I'm over it because I'm over you. All of these are different ways of inflicting pain and punishing those we believe deserve it. Back to the text, verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say, Jesus? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, guys, they knew Jesus. They had heard of his huge heart of compassion, and so they're setting a trap. They know if Jesus says, don't stone her, if, if Jesus says, let her go, he'll break the law of Moses, and he'll prove to everybody that he's not the Messiah. Watch now, end of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Sometimes these stories become so familiar, we forget how weird they are. What a weird thing to do. Usually you're having this conversation and this dude just like gets on his knees and starts writing in the stand. I guess a very odd thing to, to do. And why the redundancy? Why not just say Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground? What does it add to include the detail? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Remember, when we read the Bible, glory hides in the, huh? Anytime you, you see a, huh, go there. There's glory there. So why make sure we know about his finger? Listen to the giving of the law in Exodus 31, 18. And God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, that's the law, written with the finger of God. Quick theology huddle. Does God the Father have a finger? No. John 4.24 says God is spirit. He does not have a body. Does the Holy Spirit have a finger? No. Jesus tells us in Luke 24.39 that a spirit does not have flesh and bones like I do. So what person of the Godhead has a finger? Jesus. The law came from the Father by the Spirit through the finger of Jesus, which makes this the subtlest subtle flex of all time. <laughs> Jesus is like, oh yeah, the, the law of Moses. What is that? It's been a while since I wrote it with my finger. <laughs> it's amazing, right? And yet, just guys, guys, feel, feel the glory of verse 6. While they're debating the law, wanting to violently apply the law right now, Jesus bends down and with a single finger reveals, you're not just talking to the teacher of the law, you're talking to the law's author. And did they catch it? Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So they would have had Exodus 31, 18 memorized. Apparently there's, there's a 
religious way of knowing the Bible so well, which makes you blind to the glory of Jesus in the Bible. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What an answer. They thought Jesus was going to minimize the law. Jesus never minimized God's holy and high standard. Instead, he broadened it to apply to everyone. You've heard that said, you shall not murder, but I say to anyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. Jesus never minimized the law. He broadened it by applying it not to just actions, but to hearts. So in John 8, he's saying, you guys are so right. This woman should be stoned, but that's not the question. The question is, who should stone her? This woman should be stoned, and she should be stoned by he who is without sin. Verse 8, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Apparently, they missed it the first time. Jesus has given them another chance. And what exactly he wrote on the ground has been the speculation of commentators for the last 2,000 years. Some people think he wrote Leviticus 22 or Deuteronomy 20, the places in the law that condemned this woman. Others think Jesus may have wrote down the names or the sins of the accusers, sins for which also the law prescribed stoning. Apparently, in God's wisdom, it's not important for us to know what he wrote, only that he wrote. And this time, everyone got it. See it in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. They didn't all drop their rocks at once. They dropped their rocks one by one, beginning with the older ones. Why that detail? Apparently, there's something about growing older that makes you more willing to drop the rock. Apparently, when you've thrown a few rocks and you've seen how much damage it does and how it's really not helpful and it doesn't achieve the thing you're hoping it to achieve. Apparently, when your self-righteousness has cut off enough people And your refusal to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, has pushed those closest to you away. Apparently, when you've resented enough people to know it's only going to make you more angry and retreated from enough friends and family, at some point, if the Spirit is in you, God will teach you to drop the rock. I'm not old yet, but 30 is older than 20, and the rocks that I was throwing at 20, stones that I believed in order to remain faithful to God, I must sling this stone. Today, 10 years later, after just more sinning and a little more suffering, I've become more willing to drop the rock. Not because those things don't matter, 
but because I'm not the person to throw it. Romans 14, 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Just a word to the older ones at Vertical Church, which is like 35 and above. <laughs> Guys, for the sake of the younger, drop the rock. In John 8, the older ones had to go first in order to start the chain reaction of putting down the rocks. And at Vertical Church, we need you to go first in dropping the rock. Consider it your discipleship. We don't need any more older folks fuming over, Target said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, right? We don't need any more wigged, wired, older people going, ah, did you hear about? We don't need that. What we need are people teaching us, hey guys, 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. We need people modeling for us, before us. Hey guys, it's one's glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19, 11. So if you want your life to be irrelevant and devoid of lasting impact, just camouflage into the cultural casting of stones like everyone else. But if you want to leave a legacy, if you want to be different, if you want to shine, drop the rock and one by one we will follow you. So the older ones go first. They set down their stones. One by one, the younger ones follow. But she's not off the hook. Jesus has already agreed that she should be stoned, and she should be stoned by he who is without sin. Now look at the end of verse 9. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how quiet that moment is? Just her, half naked, her sin, her shame, and he who is without sin. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. There I was, sitting across from my girlfriend Alex, madly in love with her, who I really wanted to marry, and who I was sure was about to break up with me. And I just spilled it all. The same sex attractions, the addiction to masturbation, all the sexual activity, my sin-filled bundle of sexual brokenness. And I just remember staring at the carpet because I didn't want to look up and see her look of disgust or disappointment. And there was a moment of silence, and then I just felt 
her soft hands on my cheeks. And she got down on her knees and she lifted up my head and she looked me in the eyes and she said, Christopher, we are all sexually broken. I am so excited to marry you. Jesus stood and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Guys, just think about this. For the first time that morning, probably for the first time since this girl was a little girl, she's looking into the eyes of a man who isn't trying to use her. The morning began looking into the eyes of a man who's using her for his sexual ends. Then very violently and very quickly, she's looking in the eyes of men who are using her for their religious ends. Now for the first time, she's staring into a man's eyes, the God-man's eyes, and she sees nothing but love and compassion and mercy. He doesn't want to use her. He wants to free her from being used. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. From now on, go and sin no more. And the question is, how? How can God, the same God who wrote the law that demanded she be stoned in the first place, say that? Guys, this is the whole point of why Jesus is here. This is the gospel. She should be stoned, and she should be stoned by God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved her, sent Jesus to be stoned for her sins and in her place. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and to be the atoning sacrifice for all of those who can't. Make no mistake, someone will be executed in accordance with the law of Moses for her act of adultery. It's just not going to be her. Jesus is going to go to the cross, and she gets to go free. And that's exactly what we see in verse 11. It's for freedom that he set her free. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You can't really see it in the English, but the Greek construction implies not a ceasing from all sin, because that's impossible, but rather ceasing from a specific sin already committed. Maybe most literally translated, go, and from now on, stop this sinful habit. Jesus isn't telling her to never sin again. He's saying, hey, you don't have to go back to that guy. You don't have to come back to this place. You don't have to stay stuck in this. You can go right now. You can go and you never have to come back to this. And notice the order. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Oh, how quick we reverse that, don't we? 
go and sin no more, and then neither will I condemn you. Don't do that. The gospel is always done. Now go and do. No punishment. Now new power. Freedom. Now go have fun and fight. And guys, that's what I've experienced. Now I'm still sexually broken and my battle is still a daily fight. But especially in regards to the area of same-sex attraction, guys, they're gone. And when I minister to others on this topic, I have to think back and remember what they felt like because they're just not a part of me anymore. And you go, how, how did that happen? Like, for real, how did that happen? When I finally believe that after the cross, there is just no more punishment left for my sexual brokenness. That freed me up to begin experiencing real, felt intimacy with Jesus. And the real intimacy with Jesus satisfied my soul. And as my soul has become increasingly satisfied in Jesus, my desires have changed. And what you got to know is I didn't muscle my way out of anything. I just prioritized my relationship with Jesus day after day, day after day, day after day. And seven or eight years later, intimacy with him has become more satisfying than the fantasy of intimacy with others. Hope has a name, and its name is Jesus. But here's the thing, you guys. Demons could have listened to this message and nodded in full agreement. Unbelievers could listen to a message like this and go, man, Jesus' posture towards that woman was so beautiful. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to dare to believe that Jesus' posture towards the woman in John chapter 8 is Jesus' posture towards you. To read the Bible as a Christian is to dare believe that Jesus' words to the woman are Jesus' words to you. And so on the authority of God's word and in the presence of his Holy Spirit, these are God's words to you. No matter how sexually broken you are, no matter how present your struggle is, you may have fall, fallen yesterday, you may have fallen this morning. No matter what sinful bundle your sexual brokenness is, God, who wrote the law, is saying to you, neither do I condemn you. Go, get out of here, and don't come back to this. Guys, what if today was your day of exposure? Maybe the worst and the best day of what if today you felt the freedom, maybe for the first time in your life, to step into the light 
We say all the time, if you are 99% known, you are still unknown. 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's deeper than friendship. Fellowship, togetherness with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This week, I had to go to the elders about something and step into the light. And do you know what I felt walking out of that meeting? Cleansed. Rinsed. When we step into the light with others, Jesus' grace moves from a theological category to a felt reality. So what if you pulled someone aside this morning or later this afternoon and said, hey, can I just share what I've been caught up in? It's bad, forewarning. Can I tell you? I can tell you what would happen. You'd get freed. You'd feel forgiven. Christian, you don't have to go back there. You don't have to insist on stoning yourself. This morning, believe the gospel. Receive the gospel. And step into the light where Jesus is and where Jesus is waiting for you.